to the Colby Daniels podcast presented by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Make sure you check out their line of natural medicine products on their website, abotanicalcompany.com, or give them a call, 405-458-9699. Great people, local ownership, doing their best to help you live a better life every day. So again, educate yourself on what their products are, how they can benefit you daily, and it's it's very simple. You can order online via the website, easy pickup, safe pickup, but check it out, abotanicalcompany.com or 405-458-9699. All right, it is post-Bedlam Monday, a lot to talk about. Uh, obviously, the game on Saturday night was not what I was expecting, at least. I felt like Oklahoma was going to win the game. I had pretty much made my mind up following back-to-back performances from Oklahoma State considering what they look like on the offensive line against Texas, what they look like on the offensive line against Kansas State. It was just hard for me to imagine that group was going to be considerably better against Oklahoma and against an Oklahoma front four that has been dominate dominant for the last month. So I felt like that was going to be the difference in the game. I was very sure that that was going to be the difference in the game, but I, I didn't think that Oklahoma was going to basically give us a first-round KO in this football game. I thought it was going to be a back-and-forth game and maybe a tight game, and Oklahoma would pull away late. And ultimately, I think my final score where I landed on Saturday was 34-23, Oklahoma winning by 11. But look, this was a game where, again, I think in trying to figure out what my score was going to be, I, I really struggled with figuring out how I was going to give Oklahoma State 21 to 23 to 24 points in this game. I, you know, again, with that front four from Oklahoma playing so well, uh, I just thought that was going to be a chore to even get in the 20s. And, and when you fell behind by three touchdowns out of the gate, that was it. I mean, the game was over in my mind. When Oklahoma led 21-0, I, I just zero part of me ever believed that Oklahoma State had a chance to come back and win that thing, despite Oklahoma having a bunch of, of meltdowns and not being able to hold leads this season. Uh, Oklahoma State just offensively has not been good enough to climb out of a hole like that. Again, and considering the dominance of the Oklahoma front four, it just didn't seem like it was going to happen. I think you've got to give Lincoln Riley a ton of credit for the play calls out of the gate and really keeping Oklahoma State off balance. They they looked like they were a little bit shook out of the gate. A couple of interesting things in this game. Number one, I thought Ramondre Stevenson and Ronnie Perkins were the best two players in the game on Saturday night. These are guys that obviously served the suspension early in the season. Oklahoma is clearly a a different team and a much better team with those guys as part of the equation. Stevenson's the best offensive player they have right now. And And Perkins, I believe, is the best defensive player they have right now. And those guys absolutely shined on Saturday night against Oklahoma State. So my question for that Oklahoma State defense going into this game was how well would they be able to tackle in space against a guy like Ramondre Stevenson? Because we've seen them tackle really well all year long. I mean, that's something that I've talked about almost every week, how impressed I am with their ability to tackle in space, not give up the big play because they don't bring guys down in one-on-one situations. But I talked about it in the pregame show on Saturday. Ramondre Stevenson is a completely different situation than anything they face this year. You know, a 250-pound hammer that if he's getting into the second and third level of that defense, he's going to be pretty tough to, to bring down. And that was the situation, again, Ramondre Stevenson just looked like a load out there that Oklahoma State was not able to stop. 
So the final in this game is 41-13. It's a 28-point victory for Oklahoma. Honestly, it felt like it could have been drastically worse. Um, you know, it was all Sooners out of the gate. You felt like they had all the momentum. They were well on their way to just completely blowing Oklahoma State out. And then Buki happens. And this is an interesting part of the game because not only does it give Oklahoma State a little life, and like I said earlier, I never felt like Oklahoma State was going to come back or like the door was really open. But from a scoreboard standpoint, I guess technically this did allow them back in the game. And really what it did for me, I think, as as far as watching it and the biggest impact it had was it, it just stopped the momentum that the Sooners had, and it kind of stopped the bleeding for the Oklahoma State Cowboys. If, if he doesn't commit that penalty, you just wonder if that doesn't become 28 to zero and then 35 to zero, or if that snowball trucking down the mountain doesn't just get bigger and bigger and bigger, but his penalty obviously aided Oklahoma state in getting on the, on the board and stopping the Oklahoma momentum. That's a guy that's already getting beat. It seems like every week he's the target of opposing offenses every week. And so already there is a target on his back on top of the fact that he's kind of gained a reputation for being this kind of guy. And they're not going to tolerate anything from him as far as the officials go. And so you can debate about whether or not it was a deserving flag or not, but that's a guy that that probably should know better anyway, considering the target that's on his back and how many times he's been flagged for these kind of things. So if you're Oklahoma, again, I know they were down a bunch of dudes in the secondary. They were very thin as far as who they had available. But if it's me, when you have a guy in a, in a matchup like that that stops the momentum the way that he did and gives your opponent life, not because of the play, which is already a liability, but because he's just being an idiot, I, I would have a hard time letting the guy play again. Dead serious. And, and I don't understand why the guy has, has been given so many chances. Um, clearly, he knows where the bodies are buried or something like that. I don't know what the situation is, but he keeps getting chances to go out there, and nothing I've seen as far as his play would warrant that many opportunities. So... If I were Oklahoma, I would I, I would do everything in my power to give everybody else an opportunity to take that spot. And especially when he's not only a liability with the play, but a liability with his decision-making. So I mentioned Ramondre Stevenson and Ronnie Perkins were the best two players in Bedlam on Saturday night. I think Spencer Rattler deserves a lot of credit for how well he played. Also, it's not as though... Uh, this was, you know, some sort of Heisman Trophy winning type performance. But what he did was play against a really good defense that has done nothing but harass quarterbacks all season long, pressured quarterbacks all season long, uh, been able to get turnovers. And Spencer Rattler played a clean game. So I think at the end of the day, um, it, it's not as though you walk away from that watching him throw a bunch of touchdown passes and just torch the Cowboys over and over but he made big plays when he had to. He made plays with his legs. He made smart decisions, and he wasn't a liability. And really, other than the Kansas pick a couple weeks ago, since he was sat down against the Texas Longhorns and then given the second chance, he's been phenomenal. He's been every bit the guy that was advertised, and he has just a tremendous future. And I'm really interested to see, as far as the college football playoff committee and their evaluation of Oklahoma just how high they get on Tuesday night. Because I think 
to consider Oklahoma and the two losses and what happened early in the season and to consider the team that potentially runs the Big 12, wins a conference title game, and has some sort of winning streak down the stretch, Spencer Rattler is a different guy than he was early in the season. I mean, the the Kansas State and Iowa State games were the first two FBS starts of his entire career, and he has settled into the position and settled into FBS football. But also, the two best players on the team right now, Ramondre Stevenson's the best offensive player they have. Ronnie Perkins is the best defensive player they've had. Uh, neither one of those guys was available. So I wonder if in any way the committee uses that as as big consideration for Oklahoma's two losses, and maybe they're not penalized as much. I don't know what they're going to do. This is a crazy year, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I do think it's something interesting to keep in mind and pay attention to as far as the committee and how they evaluate Oklahoma. Mike Gundy's now 2-14 and 14 in this series, and all week last week I talked about expectations for Oklahoma State to win Bedlam and Mike Gundy to win Bedlam, And I think for some people, there's an unrealistic expectation that Oklahoma State should go 500 against the Sooners. And and I don't think that's the case. But I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that Oklahoma State maybe gets one out of every four or one out of every five. And when you look at the last decade in this series, Oklahoma State has been in a bunch of football games. It's not as though they're just getting run off the field every time they play Oklahoma I know that was the case on Saturday night, but in the last 10 matchups, Oklahoma State has won two of those. One of them was the Bob Bob Stoops repunt, which, you know, speaks for itself. But in five other opportunities, the Cowboys have had chances to win this game, and they've come up short. So uh, I do think it's an interesting conversation. I don't think that the expectation should be that you're splitting with the Sooners, but you should be better than 2-14. and And, And if you're an Oklahoma State fan, I get the frustration 2010 was a game that I think the final was 47-41. You had a chance in that one in the fourth quarter to pull it out, and you fell short. 2012, they they led for most of the way in Norman before the Jalen Saunders punt return, and you fall short. 2013, I think you had the better team. Oklahoma plays three quarterbacks, has a, a fake field goal for a touchdown at the end of the first half, and somehow the Sooners find a way to pull off the upset in Stillwater. Uh, you look at, at the game two years ago with the Corndog, two-point conversion to win it the play call is there it was the right play call if he throws an accurate football Oklahoma State wins and that's one where you fall short so it's not like they haven't had opportunities to win this game they've just fallen short and when you fall short in the majority of those opportunities that's where I think the Oklahoma State fan base starts to get upset and shows their criticism because it's again you're not going to beat Oklahoma every year you're not going to beat Oklahoma every other year but there should be an expectation that that you have to give yourself an opportunity to win, and when you're in those situations, one or two of those has to turn into a W, and that's been a big failure on Oklahoma State's part. So, you know, the question with Mike Gundy becomes, what's next for Oklahoma State? Is he the guy to put them over the top? I think you have to say that Mike Gundy has done a tremendous job as the head coach at Oklahoma State. There's no question about that. They are drastically better today than they were when Mike Gundy got the job. I I don't think anybody will even debate that. But to have the conversation about whether they have peaked under Mike Gundy or is it even possible for them to take that next step under Mike Gundy, it kind of feels like they've, they've reached as high a point as they're capable of reaching with this current regime. And there's a fear, I think, for some people 
that if you remove Mike Gundy from the equation, you go back to the the pre-Mike Gundy days of Oklahoma State football. And that, to me, is, is just absurd. Now, is it possible to bring in a, a guy that you evaluate as being a good head coach and he's a complete disaster and, and you, you fall out of the top 25 every year? That's definitely a possibility. But when you look at how Oklahoma State got to this point, it wasn't Mike Gundy alone. It was an injection of money and facilities and a lot of other factors that played a role to get Oklahoma State to where they are, including, and Mike Gundy being a big piece of that, but I don't think you just remove Mike Gundy from the equation and all of a sudden you're back to the 90s Oklahoma State teams. I, it, they, they have grown as a program. They are more well-known as a program. The facilities are drastically better. There is a focus in Stillwater within the university to, to put a focus on the program being a, a top 25 caliber program. So I think, you know, for a long time, it was a second tier program at Oklahoma State. And that's just not the case anymore. So I think there is, uh, you know, it's, it, it is a little bit crazy to me to hear people say, well, if you lose Mike Gundy, you just go back to the pre-Gundy days. I, I don't think that's accurate. But as far as the job Mike Gundy has done, it, it has been tremendous. He has elevated this Oklahoma State football program to levels that it's never been before. And when you talk about what's next, I don't know what's next for this team. It, it, I don't know that there is anywhere to go from what they've done for the last decade. I mean, you have to go back to 2011 when they won that conference title, and it's it's almost been 10 years since that's been accomplished. Uh, on top of the fact that, you know, we, we all of a sudden have this Big 12 championship game. Oklahoma State's never made an appearance in the Big 12 title game. If you want to go back before the Big 12 title game, even after Oklahoma State's conference title, Oklahoma and Texas both were down. I mean, for, for years, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, it wasn't until Baker Mayfield and Lincoln Riley got to Norman that Oklahoma reemerged as the favorite in this conference every single year. So you're still talking about a window in the league under Mike Gundy following a Big 12 championship where it kind of felt like they failed to capitalize on the Big 12 being up for grabs. And you get one conference title out of that entire period and then all of a sudden Oklahoma's back and you're falling short every single year. Yeah, I, I just I, I think that it's fair to question whether or not the Cowboys have plateaued under Mike Gundy. And and honestly, I, I think the answer is yes. I think this is what you're gonna get. Now, is it is it bad? No. I mean, they're a top twenty five team every year. I think over the last decade, they're the second most successful team in this conference. But if you want more, and and I don't know anybody that that wouldn't say that they wouldn't like to win a conference championship. I think it's fair to have the conversation and to evaluate the options. Again, when you consider the financial situation you're, you're under with Mike Gundy, is that a reasonable decision to make? I don't think it is. But um, I, 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 for the people that say they want to see Oklahoma State win a conference championship or do everything in their power to take that next step, I totally get it. So I mentioned the college football playoff. That's going to be tomorrow night, and this is going to really set the bar as far as what the expectations are going to be the rest of the way. And I don't even know today how you have a realistic conversation about where teams should be or what to expect. Tomorrow night, they'll set the tone, and they'll kind of tell us everything we need to know or at least give us an idea of maybe what to predict the rest of the way for the college football playoff because right now, you're looking at teams that have played seven games. You're looking at teams that have played three games. I, I don't know how any of this is an apples-to-apples apples type comparison. I mean, college football isn't fair 
in a normal year. It's not a level playing field in a normal year. Comparing an SEC team, for example, to an American athletic team is just not the same thing. And and they do the best they can with with what the parameters are and, and they take everything into account. But it's still a situation where a group of people are determining who is worthy of getting this shot to play for a national championship. Now, you add 2020 to the equation, a year where teams are going to experience games without key players. And and we do know this in, in past years, if a team has been missing a key piece in a loss, that's something that they account for. That's something that goes into consideration. So if you're losing guys and and you lose games because of COVID or any other reason, I think that's something that will be considered in 2020. It's also, I think, interesting when you look at the Big Ten situation, the Pac-12 situation, and how many games they ultimately get in before the end of the season compared to the three conferences that started at the beginning of the year. And if they, if all of those conferences get their full games in, you know, what is, what is a two loss big 12 champ compared to a one loss PAC 12 champ look like, like, for example, let's just say, I I don't know, pick your team, Oregon. I don't, I don't even know what their record is to be honest with you, but let's just say Oregon wins the PAC 12 and they're able to get a total of five games in or six games in and they go five and one. And let's just say Oklahoma finishes this thing out winning the conference. And I'm just using them as an example, but let's say they win the rest of their games and they're a, a nine and two team, nine and two versus five and one. I mean, how, how do you realistically evaluate that? Um, I, I would say this, I, I know that there is an idea that Oklahoma shouldn't get the benefit of the doubt because of past playoff failures. I think that is part of the equation here. But I, I, I seriously do wonder if you've only played five or six games, are you going to get the benefit of the doubt against a team that's played a full schedule? If we're talking about one game, you know, one loss to two losses being the difference in, in the conversation we're having. So, you know, the other part that's at play here is the Big 12 did themselves no favors with that first week of non-conference matchups and half the league losing those matchups. So I, I think it is a bit of a, a stretch to think that a Big 12 team is going to get that opportunity. But I do think that there is potentially a path to that happening. They would need a lot of help from multiple teams across the country. But in terms of, you know, what that looks like compared to a Pac-12 team or, you know, I think they would, I, I think a two-loss Oklahoma team would get the benefit of the doubt over a one-loss conference champion Cincinnati, uh, for example. So, I'm, I'm just really curious to see what this thing looks like tomorrow night, where they they shuffle these teams in the first ranking, and I think at that point we'll, we'll have a better idea as to how they're currently weighing things and, and maybe what the expectation will be with what's left for all these other teams. And, and look, even with that, the fact that not all these games are guaranteed to happen I think plays a big role here. Most of the time... When the college football playoff gives us a ranking, I think we can formulate some sort of educated opinion on how things shake out if it goes this way or this way or this way. But when you add the factor of potentially removing a game from even happening, and that goes out of the equation, like that could drastically change things. If, if for instance, Oklahoma has two games down the stretch that just don't even take place and there's no way to reschedule them, 
that could have a big impact on, on what a decision is. If Ohio State is also in that situation and all of a sudden in like back-to-back weeks and, and there's no you know leverage at the end of the year to, to reschedule that and, and they miss out on a couple of those opportunities, how significantly does, does that weigh on their overall resume? So this is going to be super interesting. And, and again, I think on Tuesday night, we'll have a much better idea as to how we discuss even the idea of somebody from the Big 12 or anywhere else for that matter getting that college football playoff opportunity. All right, we'll talk a little NFL here as uh, the Dallas Cowboys pull out a win over the Minnesota Vikings on Sunday. This was shocking mostly because the Dallas defense has been just absolutely dreadful all season long. They were on pace for the first like five or six weeks to be the worst defense in the history of the NFL. And while they've at least corrected that ship, this is a defense that that going into yesterday ranked 31st against the run, and you're about to face the rushing champion in the NFL, Dalvin Cook, the guy that has been slashing defenses for weeks. Uh, and I, I just thought that was a recipe for disaster. I thought Dalvin Cook was a guaranteed 200-plus yard rusher on Sunday, or if nothing else, he would hit 100 and maybe Madison would hit 100. But uh, credit to the Dallas defense for stepping up in a big way, showing heart, showing fight, and preventing Minnesota from just running all over them. As a Dallas Cowboy fan, I'll tell you this. I was asked yesterday down the stretch of that game whether I was rooting for the Cowboys to win or if I wanted them to lose. And while I, while as a Cowboy fan, it's really nice to at least see them compete and be competitive in games versus you know what it looked like for the first six weeks of this season getting completely trucked every week. I would rather see them at least play competitive football. But... I, I don't want them winning. I'm completely on the tank train. I am in favor of getting better draft picks. And not that that means you're getting Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, but you just need the best draft picks you can possibly get. And I'm looking more at 2021 as the bounce back year. Again, assuming that Dak Prescott comes back, we don't know what the draft ultimately gives you, but but you want to give yourself the best opportunity to give yourself the best players in the draft. But healthy offensive line, healthy Dak Prescott. You're probably going to figure out a a new defensive coordinator situation, maybe a new offensive coordinator situation, maybe even a new head coach. So I'm all in on the tank train. I'm all in on Dallas losing every game the rest of the way and positioning themselves to be better in 2021. Winning five games or six games and winning the NFC East to get a playoff spot to me is completely worthless. And I'll tell you why. It's not like Dak Prescott's coming back. It's not like multiple offensive linemen are coming back and that this team might actually have a shot down the stretch. In most seasons, even if you start out bad, there's a thought that maybe you'll figure things out. Maybe if you just get in the dance, maybe if you just get in the tournament, you're going to be able to have a chance. This team doesn't. Bottom line, they're without some pieces that that pretty much make it impossible for them to win four games to get to the Super Bowl. It's just not going to happen. So would I would I like to see them win the division? Would I like to see them in the postseason? In most seasons, I would say absolutely yes. Knowing that this team has zero shot at winning four games, which is what it would take in their position to get to a Super Bowl, it, it's, it's not realistic whatsoever. In fact, I'm not even going to entertain the idea that there's even a one in a million chance. It, it's just not going to happen. So... Give me the losses. I don't want to see Dallas win the division. I don't want to see them win another game this season. And I hope they're able to to pick up some pieces that, that may help push them over the top next year.
But how awesome is CeeDee Lamb? The catch he made yesterday is as good a catch as I've seen all year long. Like, I was, I was really trying to think of a better catch this year, and I guess considering what it meant to the outcome, the DeAndre Hopkins Hail Mary or Hail Murray catch is probably at the top. But in terms of just the ability to track the football completely, turn your body around, catch the ball with your hands with a guy on top of you, like, that was an Odell Beckham-type catch that that really put Odell, Odell Beckham on the map. I mean, I think this is one of those catches for CeeDee Lamb where if you were unsure as to whether or not you thought he was going to be really good in this league and the numbers weren't already doing it, which he's record-setting in Dallas right now, that catch was just phenomenal and just shows you what type of guy he is. I, I think he is already an outstanding talent in the NFL, but he might be a year or two away from being considered one of the elite receivers in the entire NFL. So excited to see CeeDee Lamb every week and his development. And again, you get him back in in an offense that has a healthy offensive line, that has a a legitimate top 10 quarterback. He's going to be fun for a long, long time in the NFL. Also crazy to think that right now, if if, if the regular season ended today, Baker Mayfield and the Cleveland Browns are in the playoffs. How mind-blowing is that? And this is also a Browns team that if you're watching them every week, it's not like Baker Mayfield is just shredding defenses. It's not like he's going out every week and throwing for 300 yards and two or three touchdowns. He has taken on the, the role of game manager for this team. And I said this a couple months ago. I think right now, until Cleveland can can start getting a consistent product every week on both sides of the football That's what he has to be for this team. Just don't be the piece that's losing it for the Cleveland Browns. Don't be the guy that's making the errors that cost you the games. They're good enough with the running game and that defense to to compete at least every week. And once you kind of learn how to win, we always talk about that in sports with, with teams that either have losing traditions or teams that are really young. You have to learn how to win and you have to learn how to win consistently. While you're trying to do that, I think in his role as a leader, you just can't be a negative every week. So he hasn't been good, but he's not making the the critical game-losing mistakes every week either. And he's giving his team a chance to win. And it's crazy to me, again, when you consider the AFC and start lining up the teams from where we thought they would be at the beginning of the year to see the Cleveland Browns at this point in the playoffs, it's pretty mind-blowing. Now, I'm also not under the illusion a lot like the Dallas Cowboys, that in that scenario, they're going to make a run. I I don't think that's the case, but to even have a chance to me is pretty crazy. And look, the Kyler Murray situation as well. Kyler Murray has the Cardinals right there on the cusp of the postseason as it stands right now in the NFC. So uh, Kyler Murray obviously doing it at a much higher level. And if you're having that MVP conversation right now, in my mind, Kyler Murray's a top five candidate for the MVP in the National Football League this year. That's how good he's been. So uh, you know, I know Russell Wilson has kind of taken a step back these last couple weeks in that race. Patrick Mahomes is, in my mind, the shoe-in to win the MVP again, and and deservedly so. The guy is just unbelievable every week. It's almost like he's so good that, a lot like LeBron James to a degree, we almost take it for granted, and we're we're just looking for other people to have a chance in this MVP narrative. And Russell Wilson was kind of that guy this year until he had a couple of, of bad weeks, but like Patrick Mahomes should probably be the front runner every year until he proves otherwise. 
And it, it kind of took Russell Wilson having a couple bad weeks for people to be like, oh yeah, Patrick Mahomes, really good. Maybe the best player in the NFL. No, he is the best player in the NFL. And I, I thought he was he was right there with, with Russell Wilson anyway, but it would take something pretty spectacular from anyone else in the NFL, in my mind, to catch Patrick Mahomes in the MVP race. And look, as far as, as the AFC goes, I think there's a better than good chance the Pittsburgh Steelers run the table. I look at the rest of their schedule. There's two games that I think there is a potential to lose if, if the Steelers don't just completely have a meltdown. They've got Baltimore one more time. I know Baltimore's not playing good football, but with Lamar Jackson, the playmakers that they have, anything's possible, and that's a rivalry game anyway. So the Ravens game is something to keep an eye on, and then they go to Buffalo, which is an interesting game. I'm not saying I would pick Buffalo to win that. In fact, I I would I unless things drastically change, I would pick Pittsburgh to win. But that's not a gimme by any means, and you have to play well to beat the Buffalo Bills. So uh, the NFL's fun right now. If I were kind of trying to figure out who I think the the real contenders are, I think there are two in the AFC. It's the Kansas City Chiefs and it's the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I, I there's no way I could bet against Kansas City, but I feel like Pittsburgh gives us another team that is is legit and wouldn't surprise me uh, to ultimately see them on the grand on the grand stage from the NFC I guess the Packers from the NFC North uh, the Saints are interesting they were my preseason pick to, to go to the Super Bowl and lose to the Chiefs uh, but they've had such an interesting road and the fact that they're even right there is is wild to me but the Drew Brees situation Michael Thomas has been in and out um, they're just a really good football team that has overcome a lot to even be in the situation they're in. But I just don't know how confident I am that all of that is is smooth sailing the rest of the way. Tampa is interesting. I mean, it kind of just feels like they're hot and cold, and I, I don't really know what to expect. But they are they're they're pretty good defensively in my mind. Um, Seattle just plays a close game against like everybody every week. And with Russell Wilson, you have a chance to win those. But again, Russell Wilson the last couple of weeks hasn't been great. Uh, I just, the NFC is wide open. And I, I think there are like five or six teams that have a chance to potentially uh, win that entire conference. So it's setting up for a really fun finale in the NFL. And uh, hopefully my Dallas Cowboys end up with a top five pick and uh, don't figure out a way to win the dumpster fire that is the NFC East. All right, so we're a few days away from Thanksgiving. I put up a poll earlier on my Twitter, at Colby underscore Daniels. Which Thanksgiving meat do you like better? Right now, there are over 500 votes. 52% say turkey, 48% say ham. I've had multiple people tell me that ham is not a Thanksgiving meat. Um, I mean, this thing's pretty close to 50-50, so... The the thought is, I think, ham is a Thanksgiving meat. I, I, I... I like them both, honestly. Like, I, I like having both options. At Thanksgiving, I put both on my plate, so uh, I'm all in. A couple years ago, my dad actually is not a big turkey fan, and he, he bought ribeyes for everybody in the family, and we cooked out ribeyes a couple years ago, which was a nice change of pace. Um, I mean, that's like my favorite meal on earth, ribeye and baked potato, but... Uh, that was that was a lot of fun just to kind of change it up. I don't know that I'd want to do that every year. I kind of like the the tradition of turkey and ham and dressing, stuffing, whichever you prefer, potatoes, mac and cheese, broccoli, rice casserole, green bean casserole, 
I'm all in on the traditional Thanksgiving foods, but uh, it was kind of fun a couple years ago to at least go with the change up there. But anyway, Thanksgiving coming up, so uh, hopefully everybody's going to enjoy Thursday, day of NFL football and food and uh, just, you know, I think more than anything, being thankful for what we have. This year has sucked ass in so many ways. I know a lot of us are, are struggling in multiple ways, and we've had family members and friends that have struggled, and, and it's just been a very taxing year. But, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is all about being thankful, and I've done my best, I think, in the last couple of weeks to try and remember uh, not to look at the things I don't have, but appreciate the things that I do have. And so that's just something to keep in mind uh, throughout this week. All right, that is it. Short show today. Uh, Eric G going to join me tomorrow. Aaron Davis going to join me on Wednesday. Uh, I do have a West Virginia insider that is going to kind of preview Oklahoma, West Virginia a little later in the week, and we'll probably do that on Friday. But uh, hope everybody has a great week. Again, just try and remember uh, what you do have and what you're thankful for this week and appreciate the things that you do have. This episode is brought to you by Artisan Botanicals in Midwest City. Make sure you check out their line of natural medicine products, abotanicalcompany.com, or give them a call, 405-458-9699. You can order from the website. It's easy to order, uh, easy pickup, safe pickup, so uh, don't worry about any of that. But uh, great people, great, uh, great friends, and local ownership doing great things in the community around them. So appreciate Artisan Botanicals. All right, everybody stay safe. Have a great day, and I will talk to you tomorrow. The podcast is over.